Happy Thursday, everybody, and welcome back to Unbothered. Your host, Josh, here, and today, talking about last night's Heat-Celtics Game 1. A great, great game, great comeback by the Heat. Um, I'd react to that. Then I get into the Lakers-Nuggets Game 2 tonight. Uh, I'll also talk about Boston Heat Game 2 as well. Uh, since I won't be doing a podcast tomorrow, I'll be talking about the Wimbenyama sweepstakes and going to the Spurs, the immense pressure that's on him as the number one pick. And then I'm going to get into the uh, NHL, Stars, Golden Knights, Panthers, Hurricanes. I'll just make two quick picks at the end of the podcast, as well as give you my top five sports documentaries of all time. But first, I want to start off with something that I touched on uh, Monday, and that was with Jaws, John Morant, uh, the title of the podcast I did was uh, Jaws Suspension, again, on Monday, and, you know, I really delved deep into um, uh, his suspension that, you know, he's currently uh, facing or is He's currently suspended from, you know, the facility and team activities. And the NBA will probably hand down a multi-game uh, double-digit uh, punishment. So I went, just went into John Morant, who said my piece, and advice to him. Didn't want to hammer him or uh, lay down the hammer or anything like that. Because uh, I love watching John. Uh, I think he's a great kid-making Bad choices. Again, being the same age, but uh, there's been a lot of talk on Josh's suspension and uh, different analysts predicting or saying how many games they think he should be suspended. So, you know, it goes anywhere from 16 to 25 to 41 to a whole year. Uh, People have, uh, they range their suspension, I believe, because they vary on the history of dumb decisions that Jai has made. If this was his first dumb decision, again, I think it would be less. Um, But he's had quite a few incidents over the past six months to a year, so it's been difficult for him. But I really wanted to dive deep, and I'm going to take a side on this, is uh, something that was brought up by J.J. Redick uh, on ESPN, I believe, Yes, yesterday it was, yesterday morning. And then the TNT crew, and specifically to me, like Chuck and Shaq responded uh, to that on uh, NBA TNT last night after the Heat-Celtics game and gave their thoughts on it. And usually I'm all for J.J. Redick. I agree with what he says. Uh, however, this was not the case. I agree with Chuck on this. Uh, I won't say what Chuck said about JJ and other commentators, but nicely he said that they're idiots. And again, I agree with Charles. If you didn't hear the takes, uh, JJ Reddick made John Morant's suspension a a political thing, um, saying that, you know, he's in a state where you can carry a gun, and he made it political because he brought in Reddick from Texas, and the Tennessee mayor, GOP guy, whoever it is, and brought him to this and made it political because he didn't break a federal law. 
Now that's fine. And I'm going to say this uh, after I say what Chuck says. And Chuck said, uh, again, uh, you know, he's an idiot for defending uh, John Morant uh, because, you know, he didn't, I don't think, you know, most people aren't thinking what J.J. is thinking on this. Nobody's making this a political issue. Um, and, you know, I was talking to my brother about this yesterday, uh, John Morant, is if it was a bum, if it was a scrub on any other team, if it was, you know, Tyus Jones or, you know, the backup point guard for Memphis, you know, or Mo Bamba on the Lakers or some guy that isn't that talented, they would have been cut from a team. But since this is John Morant, it's, we got to suspend them since we can't cut them. You know, we can't trade them. So it's a more delicate situation to be around. And again, I agree with what Shaq said as well, is there's written laws and there's unwritten laws. Now, John Morant is part of the NBA, where it's a billion-dollar industry, as Shaq said. And there's just some things you have to follow that are unwritten laws. Uh, Chuck said, you know, if, you know, you're making a hundred million dollars a year, your contract's $200 million. If you want to trade that in and post pictures with your piece and, you know, do all that, you can trade it in. Um, you know, in my job, if I was posting pictures with guns every day, I probably wouldn't get suspended. Probably just fire me. That's what would happen. That's what happens. They, I wouldn't make it a little political issue if J.J. Reddick was posting pictures of guns, uh, holding them and, you know, showing them off on Instagram Lives. ESPN would probably fire him. ESPN, owned by Walt Disney, a family-friendly company, would fire J.J. Reddick. That's what would happen. It wouldn't be... A political issue, and if JJ were to go in there and say, "Oh, look at this guy and this guy uh, promote guns," they don't care about it. And if you were to say, oh, "I didn't break a law," well, you can't promote something that we, as a company, as an organization, don't want to be promoted with or associated with the NBA doesn't want to be associated with people who act like and want to be that particular lifestyle where you're holding guns and going off the walls and associating with a lifestyle that no other NBA player, at least publicly, identifies as such a job. I follow a lot of NBA players and... Nobody does what Jod does. Uh, LeBron, after he drops the game, aren't at strip clubs holding up guns. It's not what he does. He's drinking a bottle of wine, talking with his kids, with his wife. That's what he does. Kevin Durant is at Ocean 44 in Phoenix. That's what they do. Uh, James Harden goes to Vegas, likes going to clubs. He's known for that, but he doesn't post pictures of doing that. He can say it all he wants. He can say what he wants, but there's no phone. He doesn't 
photo it, get associated with that. So if he wants to go the James Harden route and stay quiet about his personal life, that's all fine. But he just makes it so public that people have these stances on it. So again, I'm for the TNT crew. I think he will be suspended. I think he should be suspended because, again, the NBA doesn't want people promoting a certain image that they don't want to be associated with. So, you know, what do you do when you have an employee? That's what Jai is. He's an employee of a private organization. Yes, he's his own individual, and individuals have choices. They can do whatever they want. But as a company that owns, uh, you know, a lot of position and stock and has a lot of employees, they can choose what to do with those employees. Uh, They can suspend them, fire them, again, for violating those unwritten laws in the NBA. And JJ wants to talk about, you know, we get a mandate at the beginning of the season of the rules and stuff like that. Well, not everything has to be written in stone for it to be followed. There's a lot of just unwritten rules that you follow in life that usually work out better for you. It's just what it is. And same with companies as well. Now, if you want to look for loopholes in those unwritten rules, that's fine. But the company, again, has that decision that they can suspend you, they can fine you, they can fire you, all that. So I'm all for what Chuck and Shaq said. Again, I hope John matures. I hope he finds help. I hope this is the last incident that ever happens to him. I think it's unlikely because he has a big pattern of that now. But I'd like for him to mature, grow up, find better friends, look in the mirror, and really evaluate himself. Now let's move on to the Heat Celtics last night. This was a tremendous game. Unfortunately, I have YouTube TV. uh, So why is that unfortunate? Well, if anybody who had YouTube TV last night Apparently, there were technical issues with the one channel that I guess everybody wanted to watch, the Miami Heat Boston Celtics. So they tweeted after the game that, uh, sorry for technical difficulties you were experiencing watching the game. Well, yeah, it was a problem because it buffered every two seconds on the first quarter. There was major time lapses. All of a sudden, make a shot, it would go back in time. Then it would speed up to a shot I didn't watch, so... It was like I was in a flash or something watching that first half. Fortunately, I also have Hulu Plus Live TV, so their connection was much better. Their uh, was much clearer as well. I won't give them that, but uh, Boston, to me, lost the game. It wasn't the Heat winning the game. It was Boston losing the game. Jimmy Butler, I'll say was great, you know, against the Knicks, just had a so-so series, shot 11% from three, only 40% from the field. He wasn't good. Uh, I should, was, he wasn't as good as he was in the Bucks series. And again, I think it had something to do with that ankle. 
Well, I don't know if the ankle just healed over those four day of rest, but he was great uh, last night. 35 points, um, seven assists, five rebounds, two of four from three, 50%. That'll work. You don't have to jack up those shots. Bam Adebayo, or, or I mean, Jimmy Butler was 12 of 25 from the field. He was great. Bam Adebayo, 20 points. Kyle Lowry gave you 15 big points off the bench. Uh, he was great. Um, as well. So, again, I'll give props to those players from Miami who stepped up and played a tremendous game. But I'm not going to act like Boston didn't lose this game. Uh, Jason Tatum had 30 points with the leading score. Um, I thought he was good. He was 11 of 11 from a free throw line. But in the fourth quarter, only took four shots. He That can't happen. He's the best player on the court. That can't happen. Jalen Brown was jacking up shots like crazy. Jalen Brown, to me, was terrible yesterday. Now, now the plus-minus indicates it. Now, defensively, I thought he was good. I thought he was the best defender on the floor. But he had 22 points. Took 21 shots to get there, though. Uh, one for six from three. He was jacking up threes, and especially late in the game as well. He missed every single one. Uh, he couldn't hit at all. And he had six turnovers. He led the team in turnovers. Uh, it was just embarrassment, especially in the fourth quarter. It was turnover after turnover. It was like, oh, like, pass the ball to Jason Tatum. Uh, and Jason Tatum thrown it around a couple times. He would call for the ball. He'd have his hands up. And Jalen Brown thinks he's Batman with that mask on. That's exactly what me and my dad were talking about yesterday night watching the game with that mask on. He thinks he's Batman. He thinks he's the best player on this team. He's the alpha. Newsflash, you're not Batman. Take the mask off. You are Robin. The Batman on this team is Jason Tatum. And I get Jason Tatum uh, is trying to mend this relationship with Jalen Brown because Jalen Brown knows Jason Tatum was close with KD. I believe a little part of Jason Tatum wanted KD to come on... Boston and for the Jalen Brown trade that was proposed. I don't know if it was ever made official or not, uh, but they're trying to mingle this thing, and Jalen Brown wants to prove I'm the number one guy, I'm the alpha, I'm the leader. You're just not that guy. You're a number two on the team with a number one mindset. Jason Tatum is the guy. He's number one. He's the best player on the floor, not Jalen Brown. So late in the game, the decision-making, it shows yesterday, Jalen Brown's decision-making just isn't there. I want Jason Tatum in his decision-making. Heck, even the experience of Marcus Smart, who I thought was really good, the 11 assists yesterday, I thought he had a great game with only 13 points. The assists that he had, uh, the defense as well, like Marcus Smart, aggression. Uh, but Jalen Brown... That was one big issue I had with the team. The other one was the three-point discrepancy. Is this game one really mirrored, I thought, the game one against the Sixers last year? Where you had this lead, you're winning, and you just blow it, lack of execution. Late in the game, uh, again, in the points of the paint, they had 62 this game. They prefer to put up more threes. They only had 29 three-point attempts. 
They prefer to have like 40 of those, so I believe if they would have traded in some of those two for threes, they would have won this game. But credit to Miami for good perimeter defense. They only shot 35% from three. But if I'm Boston, you know, I'm literally thinking, how is that even possible that they did this again? It's kind of like in Guardians uh, of the Galaxy Volume 2, for those that have watched it. End of the movie, Rocket is explaining to Groot how to uh, detonate the bomb. Uh, and he, Groot goes through it the first way incorrectly. Rocket says, try again. And he does the same exact thing, and Rocket says, how is that even possible? Well, that's exactly what I thought from a Boston Celtics. It's like, I just saw this game one against the Sixers last year. It was two weeks ago. You lost the same way at home. And then you do the same exact thing right now. It's like, did you learn? How is that even possible that you do that? It's, uh, you know... I don't get the lack of execution. I believe it's on uh, Joe Mazzulla should have taken more timeouts in the third. I get his team composure since uh, Miami scored 46 points in that third quarter. Uh, they needed to stop Jimmy Butler. And they also, you know, Joe Mazzulla, you know, said last week he loves Jason Tatum, loves Jason Tatum. Well, how about he call a timeout and maybe sometimes just not put Jalen Brown in the game so they – Jason Tatum can go to work, or he tells Jalen Brown, like, I like you, Jalen Brown, but I love Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum is the guy here, but something's got to change because Miami has is not a more talented team than Philadelphia, but they're mentally tougher than Philadelphia, so it can be a more close series. And the last series won seven games. Boston can't afford these mistakes that they continue to make and cost them games. Again, to me, it makes no sense whatsoever, but it continues to happen. Next, Lakers Nuggets, game two tonight. So I predicted game two, um, I mean, I predicted Nuggets to win this series. I predicted... Lakers to win a close one in game one. And game one was, I think, very entertaining in the second half. The first half, it was just very, very poor showing by the Los Angeles Lakers. It was uh, reminiscent of what I saw when I was at that Suns game. It's, they were, you know, scored 30 Two point, or my, 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 my bad, 70, uh, two points at halftime. That's unacceptable defense. Uh, the rebound discrepancy was big in the first quarter, like 22 to 6. Nikola Jokic owned the first half, the first three quarters, uh, had his fingerprints on the whole game. He was fantastic. Um, and again, he proved why he's the best player in the world. Now Anthony Davis offensively, he was really good. 40 points, um, 10 rebounds, uh, but again, defensively, I need to see him do better on Jokic. So game one, bad first half. This is the best offensive team in the Nuggets in the playoffs and the best defensive team in the playoffs in the Lakers. Something's got to give. Something gave game one. Denver just came out firing. They were really good, uh, but I'm glad. And this is something, you know, 
the Lakers have done so well all year is their second half adjustments are fantastic. I mean, uh, and even the adjustments in game, uh, Darvin Ham, I think, has done an excellent job in saying, hey, this isn't working for us. I'm switching to this now. There has been some growing pains. There's been some, you know, decisions from Darvin Ham in game. We're like, what? That was, you know, why'd you stop that so early? Uh, but there's been a lot of times, especially in the playoffs, where he's making the correct decisions. He's reading the game the right way. So I got to give a lot of credit uh, to Darvin Ham. So now it's game two. Um, one of the adjustments that Darvin Ham made was putting Rui on uh, Nikola Jokic, which made them a bigger team, not three guards, which I liked. Uh, AD is a rover, could double-team Jokic or stay on his man and help out, uh, which I think is when uh, AD is at his best defensively is, you know, roaming uh, the point because he he's really does stay engaged uh, that way. So I think that was a big adjustment uh, for them. Of course, I think Michael Malone will counter as he said, you know, don't act like we've never seen anything like that before. So I think there will be some adjustments, but I think Lakers, you know, can make more in-game adjustments. So if both teams are playing their chess moves, I think Darvin Ham's already thinking about another adjustment he can make. And I believe the Lakers will win this game. I'm still confident in the Nuggets to win this series. Uh, I think it will go to seven because of how closely that game is. I don't believe, though, that game two is a must-win for the Lakers. Uh, I disagree with that notion that game two is a must-win because Lakers are going back home. So if they hold serve, it could be two to two going into game five. Let's say Nuggets win that one, three, two. And it's, again, if everything holds serve the first three First six games, it's 3-3, and we have a Game 7. And who is the greatest Game 7 player of all time? Oh, it just happens to be LeBron James on the Lakers. So, And he's won, I think, the toughest Game 7, which was coming back from 3-1 in the finals. Game 7 in Oracle against the defending champion Golden State Warriors in 2016. So, yeah, that was a taller task than Game 7 against this Nuggets team. Uh, So, I'm just saying, this is not a critical must-win. It would be a nice win because then it would at least split home court 1-1. And it's not as desperate going into Game 3 where then Game 3 would be a must-win. But it's not. This would. I'm not going to claim that Game 2 is a must-win for the Lakers. If anything, it's more of a priority win for the Nuggets to win uh, other than the Lakers because, again, the Lakers haven't lost a home game either with the Nuggets. Uh, The Lakers fans have been showing up. That crowd has been electric, uh, so we'll see there. But I believe uh, the Nuggets were higher point favorites game one. I believe that the line was from like six to seven. Right now they're only five and a half. And I think that line's going to shrink by the end of the night, but I like the Lakers to win uh, tonight. Then tomorrow, we have Heat Celtics game two. Again, uh, won't be doing a podcast, so I'll talk about that one as well. The line to me is very surprising already. Uh, Celtics were eight point favorites in game one yesterday and lost. 
I don't know if Vegas is doubling down, but Boston is nine-point favorites. And when you look at halftime yesterday, uh, the score you know was reflective because Celtics were up by 12 at halftime. And, you know, it looked like the route wasn't coming. It was looking good. So, I, to me, Celtics are a better team, but it's this lazy, lackadaisical play that continues to plague them, haunt them going. Cold, uh, late game hurts them. But the one thing I like about Boston is they're pretty good about responding after the loss, especially in this playoffs. I know they lost to the Sixers uh, twice in a row, but outside of that, they've been very good at answering from a loss and, Responding to the moment, I believe Boston uh, will do that again. I don't think Boston's going to drop both games in Boston. Highly unlikely for that to happen. So I think Jason Tatum, you know, just dropped 30. I think he's going to be more in command this game. Uh, I could see another 30-plus point game from him. Hopefully Jalen Brown uh, puts his efficiency back in order, wakes up or does something. I hope that happens for him. I think this will be a dogfight as well. Uh, but Celtics win a crucial game, too. And then going into the weekend, uh, I believe we have a couple of 1-1 series on our hands. So it's going to be great, great NBA. I'm continually looking forward to it. Now I want to talk about Victor Wimbanyama. It was the France phenom, like seven foot five, uh, gonna be the number one pick. So the Spurs got the draft lottery, and they're going to get uh, Wimbenyama. Uh, it's kind of what everyone thinks. It's expected he's gonna go number one, and you know. He seemed happy. He was happy he's not coached by the Rockets. But I've got a couple things Is just with the Spurs. How is he going to get being coached by Coach Greg Popovich? Because to me, he's the, he's like the oldest coach in the NBA. He's the oldest of old school in the NBA where it feels like he's really coaching still in the 1990s, early 2000s compared to the 2020s with the new players and the player empowerment. Keeping players happy, uh, you know, you saw Tim Duncan and Tony Parker fit this mold, Mono Ginobili, Kawhi didn't fit the mold, uh, DeJounte Murray didn't as well. So some of their younger talent has come in, has not fit this Greg Popovich mold, so I'm just worried about uh, the coach fit. I think the team fit and the organization I think is good, but the coach to me raises an eyebrow considering some other talent that has left. And then another thing I'm tired of was Wimbanyama is the LeBron comparisons. People have called him the greatest draft prospect of all time. Now, before that was like LeBron and Magic Johnson. So in order to live up to the hype, he has to be a top five player of all time. He has to be considered a top five great with Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Magic Johnson. And I believe that's tall, too tall of a task to ask. I don't like the LeBron comparison. I'm kind of sick of it, trying to get LeBron out of here, usher in the new thing, new guy. But guess what? LeBron in his 20th year is still dropping 
27 a night on kids. On, on, is Victor going to be doing this in 20 years? Probably not. And, you know, I look at Victor's stats, you know, haven't watched a couple highlights from him, but 22 points he averaged this past year before he didn't average more than 10. So his first year averaging 22 points, averaged 10 rebounds again, understandable for a guy that tall before that was less than five, and two assists. So he's kind of a walking double-double, which I expect. But a lot of people talk about his unicorn, his three-point shooting. Well, this year his three-point shooting, 28%. His career over in France is 29%. I'm not buying his three-point shooting at all in efficiency. Has never shot over 50% and is a 45% career, 47% this past year. So I think there is some, uh, like, you know, hold on here. Because you look at LeBron's senior year, uh, I couldn't get the averages from it. But, you know, he was scoring his lowest, two, two lowest uh, outings were 11 and 15, and two of those were in the first three games. And then after that, it was like 30, a long stretch of high 20s. He dropped a 40-piece, a 50-piece, a couple 30s, more 40s. Uh, his average probably would have been around 28, 30 uh, for that you know, high school season. And again, one of those games he got, uh, the first game he had 11 points, the game was suspended. So, you know, I don't want to hear that. LeBron's actually first game. In the NBA, he dropped 25 points, 9 assists, 6 rebounds. Can Victor do that? I mean, in LeBron's rookie year, more of a points, you know, was better than uh, Victor in that season right there. It was 21, uh, you know, 5 rebounds, 6 rebounds, 6 assists. His only year not making an all-star team or all-NBA team. And then after that, it was, you know, downhill from there. It was 27, 7, and 7 at minimum. Every year. So, again, do I think Wimbanyama is going to live up to these LeBron comparisons and his high draft hype? No, I highly doubt it. Um, I hope he turns out well. I hope he plays well. I'm rooting for the kid. Uh, but, again, the comparisons to me are a bit much. I'm tired of them. Uh, and, again, he's got a lot to live up to. I think those comparisons are unfair, too. Because a lot of people call LeBron the GOAT, um, and a lot of these players compared to are in the top five of all time. So if he's not a top five player of all time with this expectations, is he a bust? If he's not top 12 like a KD, is he a bust? Or Steph Curry? So again, that conversation makes it very interesting. But we'll see how Victor Womanyama works out with the Spurs moving forward. And then how much of an impact he really has on that team, who was the worst team in the league this year. Now, since the NHL Conference Finals are upon us, this is only going to take like 15 seconds. I'm just going to make my picks for the series. So the first series is Panthers-Hurricanes Eastern Conference Finals. I believe the Hurricanes are going to win uh, they were the best team in the Metro, which had the Rangers and Devils. So coming out of that was impressive. Yes, Panthers beat the Maple Leafs and the Bruins in back-to-back rounds. But they're the worst team. To make the playoffs, I don't see the Panthers making a run. 
Uh, I think this is where her Cinderella run kind of ends. I like the Hurricanes uh, to win against the Panthers. Him and Stars, Golden Knights, uh, two teams that have been here. Uh, before, Stars haven't been able to close a deal. Uh, one Stanley Cup, again, couldn't do it. Same with the Golden Knights, two very similar teams. However, Golden Knights, I think, just have more firepower, uh, more youth speed. Uh, so I like the Golden Knights to win this game. Golden Knights get back to the finals, and we'll play the Hurricanes for the Stanley Cup. Then next, McGregor Forever is a new uh, sports documentary on Netflix. Four episodes dropped yesterday. Watched the first episode. It was terrific glance into uh, post-Conor uh, McGregor, uh, again, post-Mayweather fight, leading up to the Habib Nurgamed. Uh, I forget how to pronounce his last name now. Uh, the Habib fight, Nurmagomedov uh, fight, and then kind of just the little aftermath of that with his community service. I thought it was first episode was really well done. Uh, you know, saw just the emotion Connor had, but for that fight leading up to it after that. I'm looking forward to watching the remaining three episodes as well. But to me, sports documentaries when done rightly. They're the best because, again, my two favorite things are sports and film. So combining those t- two things, again, when they're good and entertaining, really can't beat it. So, again, with that being said, uh, I'm going to rank my top five sports documentaries. Now, McGregor Forever could enter this when it's done, but these are my top five sports documentaries of all time. Number five, 30 for 30, Trojan War. Now, ESPN does great, I think, on the 30 for 30 series. They've done so many great uh, 30 for 30 uh, documentaries covering such a variety of sports topics and investigations and a lot of things. But I believe their best one still is Trojan War, which covered the uh, USC glory days with Pete Carroll, Reggie Bush, uh, Matt Leinart, uh, Thunder and Lightning there rise to the top where they won multiple national championships and then the aftermath of the uh, boosters and the suspension and the takeaway vacating those titles and wins. Uh, However, because there's no PEDs, the players, and even I, to me, I consider those wins and, um, you know, national championships because the players had to still go out there and play. The coaches had to coach. So even though those records don't stand that they had, that was a very dominant USC team. It was a very interesting and fascinating documentary on those uh, USC teams and uh, the team that eventually beat them, Texas and Vince Young. Again, that was greatly done. Number four, it's an oldie, but as someone who also loves to work out, number four is Pumping Iron with the great Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, Again, this to me... Is just very motivating. If I'm in a rut working out, I can put this documentary in, and there's always something new uh, to learn about working out, just going back to the basics. Again, seeing Arnold himself in his prime, Mr. Olympia, Mr. Universe, uh, all that to me, that is another just fascinating documentary that deals with uh, working out and the preparation you know, that goes in, that kind of consumes them um, for their training. 
Number three was a recent one, and that was Full Swing Golf Documentary. And it probably is the most interesting concept you could take with golf is, you know, interviewing key players on the PGA Tour. Of course, this was happening at the same time Live uh, Golf Tour emerged. So you had those kind of clashing personalities. I thought the way they did it was great, the way they started it, with a couple of good players culminating to the Rory McIlroy episode at the end. Uh, I thought that one was, you know, worth watching. It really was good, even for those that are golf fans that sport against sports documentary. That was a good one to watch. Number two, The Last Dance. Now, this what happened. They debuted this during COVID. This was like the only sports thing on The Last Dance featuring Michael Jordan and specifically the 98 Bulls team again, which was the, uh, oh, my bad, the, yeah, 98 Bulls team, which was the last Michael Jordan with the Chicago Bulls, which won the championship, but also uh, flashbacks to the previous runs to the championships leading up to that last dance. I thought it was very good seeing Scottie Pippen and Steve Kerr, all those personalities there, the interviews with, again, uh, what's his name? Michael Jordan and all of them I thought were very good, and even other players like the Isaiah Thomases of the world. Again, greatly done. But to me, the number one documentary, of course, I'm biased here because I love football and Tom Brady. So, of course, number one is Man in the Arena, Tom Brady, uh, which was an ESPN Plus documentary. Again, it was Tom Brady uh, kind of covering his 10 Super Bowls, 10 episodes, the highs, the ups and downs of the Patriots, uh, you know, dynasty covering that, but then also his final time in Tampa Bay. Uh, as well, and kind of him and Gronk's rejuvenation for the game, I thought was great. I thought it was really personal, um, personable with how they did it and dived into those details of Tom Brady and other people like Gronk, who made a couple of appearances on there, and you know his former wife Giselle uh, and Wes Welker and all those guys, Julian Edelman. Again, that was you know another fantastic documentary. So I'm, I probably missed a few uh, on there. I've watched so many. Um, but again, those are just my top five. Trojan War, Pumping Iron, Full Swing, The Last Dance, and Tom Brady's The Man in the Arena. And then also, they're making another one, Man in the Arena series with Serena Williams. That'll be another great watch. I'll look forward to when that comes out. There's other sports documentaries in my work, uh, which, of course, will be added to the list. But this has been Unbothered. I hope everyone has a great weekend. Uh, Lakers Nuggets tonight. Heat uh, Celtics tomorrow. I'll talk to you all next week. Bye, everybody.